Okay, we're going to return tonight, and I really hope that I can finish with uh, Revelation chapter 5. I still can't quite get my, my mind around all that God is teaching me here. When it, it hit me as we were in chapter 4, the possibility that the 24 elders that are there, the recognition, first of all, that John was not looking at that moment at a future event, though that's what he says that the promise of God that I'll take you and show you future things. It says immediately he was in the spirit and saw the throne room of God. That I don't think the throne room was the future event that was being promised. I think that he was being promised that, but he was so taken aback by the throne room that he entered. And in chapter four, that's what he describes in great detail, what he saw in the throne room. And when it hit me that I don't think that that is part of the future event, the way that it's written, because in the spirit, he could see what was going on right now. And to consider the possibility that those 24 elders that are there are not simply the representation of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, apostles, which is typical teaching because it's just real easy math. 12 of those and 12 of these, that must be the 24. But when I began to study and look at the fact that during the days of David, Levitical order, those of the priest were divided and selected by families, that they were divided into 24 courses so that out of those 24 courses, a person could come and serve in all that, that God required. And he, they could do it representing full priesthood. And they could come and only 24 of them serve. And so my mind began to consider the possibility that the 24 that are serving now are representing the current priesthood, that we actually have an opportunity to be sitting today in the presence of God, that that's not a future event. And what began to happen in my head was that some of these scriptures begin to connect. When it says that they're seated, the 24 seats seated around the throne and the people who are sitting there are seated, they're not up busy, they're seated there. They're abiding there. So that connected with John chapter 15 about abiding, not up working, abiding in the vine. The fact that they're wearing crowns, the number 24, the prayers that they offer in representation of the priesthood, the fact that the epistles of Peter calls us the priesthood of believers. We are the priesthood today. Every one of us as believers is a priest called into that ministry to be a priest. Again, and so these scriptures begin to connect in the Old Testament. Why did the priests, when they went into the Holy of Holies, did they wear linen? Because they weren't allowed to sweat. They weren't allowed to perform anything that would cause them to work in the presence of God. Because work was not permitted. We abide there and he produces through us. So these things begin to connect. The scripture in Ephesians chapter 2 that says we've already been seated in heavenly places. So I'm thinking, isn't it interesting a little bit fascinating that we already have access into that throne room. That's not describing something that would happen someday. And all of a sudden I hear these words from, from John the Baptist says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand now because there's a king and we're in his presence. That's a kingdom, not someday, right now. The kingdom life is right now. And there's no reason for us not to be able to enter into the throne room. And we're told to approach that throne of grace boldly as if we're already, we already have to have access into that throne room. Now, what difference does it make to me as, as a, in, in my everyday Christian life? 
It's not something that I'm longing for someday. It's, an ex- it's the life I'm supposed to exist in. I'm supposed to exist in this kingdom life. I'm a kingdom citizen. I'm a member of a priesthood that has access into the Holy of Holies. I can enter into his presence right now. That's how, to me, it got tied all the way back to Genesis. What happened to Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the garden? They lost their ability to walk with God. So my head's going now that what they took out there with them was what they now passed to us was that we are the fallen heirs of a fallen Adam And because of the sin that they had committed is what created this separation between them and God. So they couldn't walk with God again. And you think about this. How many people did God talk to directly in the Old Testament? Venture a guess. I don't know the answer to this. Your guess is going to be as good as mine. How many did he talk to? He talked to a handful. No more than a handful. Because he would only speak to the leadership. He would speak to David. He would speak to Moses. But Moses had to go tell the people what God said because God wasn't going to deal with them like he does with us. He only spoke to the leadership and gave them direction because he couldn't indwell them because the sin that they had that had been passed now from Adam to them was undealt with until Jesus. Again, this is how we know that when Jesus was crucified, It says he goes to paradise, which is the word Sheol or Hades. He went to the place of death because who was there? All the Old Testament believers were there. Why were they not in heaven yet? Because there was no sacrifice that would fully deal with their sin. that would allow them to be able to enter into the presence of the father because the son was the only one who could make a person in our humanity acceptable to God. They had to wait. But at his crucifixion, when he tells the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, that word is Hades or Sheol. He went there, according to Ephesians, to take those who had been held captive there by this. He took captivity captive and took them to the third heaven. These things begin to connect. But we recognize that that which excluded us from being able to walk with God because of Adam's sin, because of Eve's sin, because of what they had done and who they were, that when Jesus died, that now allows my sin to be reconciled back to God, that, I can, that that sin can be dealt with. I can walk with God again. I can walk right back into the Garden of Eden again, where perfection was. Connect the dots. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's an instruction given to us. Why would he tell us that if we couldn't walk back into the place of perfection, if we couldn't go back into Eden again? Because we recognize that Eden, the separation wasn't simply because it was a geographical area. The separation was spiritual. And when reconciliation was made, now that spirit, his spirit and our spirit could be one again. We could walk with God again. So being able to go into Eden, which had always been in my mind up until I started studying this, was still a future event that Eden would be open again. We could be able to go. No, it's already done. And because it's already done, we can recognize I can walk into the throne room of God. I can be in his presence because my sin has been reconciled. My sin has been dealt with. The price has been paid. I have standing before God based on his son's righteousness, not my own, that my mind's just doing this. These scriptures that have kind of sat there powerfully for all these years are now anchored in something common that we as the priest are already in the throne room of God. We're already witnesses to this. We're already supposed to be able to see his glory, to see the magnificence of who he is. And by the church, by the place where he has come to indwell us, and we sit here as a collection of believers in this corporate body called a church, the churches that he is allowed to be in 
are supposed to put on display his splendor. What we see strangely in Revelation 4, when we're talking about how beautiful this is, that's what church is supposed to look like because he lives and has chosen, the person who creates this beauty has chosen to live in our hearts. So what should be the natural outcome of his presence in me? It should be him, Revelation 4. The church should be a place of absolute splendor. And we've made it a place of routine and boredom, or we've tried to make it a place with spectacular show so that we can attract people and have failed to recognize that the only thing that's attractive about church is his presence. If we're being attracted by anything else, then we've missed the point. We're in his throne room, awestruck where we get to abide, who we get to look at, who we get to talk to, who we get to offer our prayers to, the closeness and the proximity of us to the presence of God. And there's no awe. There's nothing that stuns us except how routine and boring religion and church has become. I can tell you we've missed so many things. But again, the big move for me was the recognition of the possibility that those 24 elders are us right now. Well, the beginning of chapter five, where he described what he was looking at in the throne and what the throne room looked like, in, in Revelation 5, he begins to tell us about an event that he began to see. And in that event, there is someone sitting on the throne and he can see this scroll that someone holds. And we know who it is. We know it's God the Father sitting there, unable, even to him, unable to open that scroll. So the question is asked, who is able? And John's seeing this unfold. Who is able to unfold this scroll? And he says, there was great weeping because they searched through heaven, they searched through earth and could find no one worthy until the angel said, don't weep. There is someone who can do it. The lion of Judah out of the house of David. There is someone who meets the qualifications, who meets the criteria that will be able to open the scroll. So we talked at length about what's written on the scroll. And we went back to Jeremiah 32 to a beautiful illustration of Jeremiah buying a parcel of land from a relative who he had the right to redeem, had the right to buy it and needed to stay in the family, except they were imprisoned in Jerusalem and couldn't go and actually possess the land. He was in prison in Jerusalem. But that's where the transaction occurred. So the transaction was recorded on two scrolls. One scroll would describe the payment, what would be required of him? What would he pay and how did he pay it? And all that was written on one scroll. On the other scroll was the future plan for how he would be able to redeem the land when he finally was free enough to go take possession of it. So one of them said, this is what's happened. This is what's been done. It's been described. The other simply says, someday when I'm not in prison here and I go to take the land, this is how it will transfer to me and all that was written down on those two scrolls. So we learn what was written on that scroll that God the Father holds. It was a plan of redemption. It would be a plan that would put us back before God in a relationship that he wanted unaffected by sin. So we know what John is about to see. When this scroll is, is unrolled, the seven seals are broken, and we begin to see this unfold. What we know is we're fixing to see, we're about to see, it's what's going to happen from the time of the end of Armageddon 
to the time when there's a new heaven and a new earth. What will it take from the tribulation to get us to the new heaven and the new earth? And we know that that redemption plan is what we're fixing to see on those scrolls. A plan for our redemption. Because of all that was done, all that has already been done in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the giving of the Holy Spirit, redemption is not complete yet because I have still have to deal with an enemy. I still have to deal with sin. And there's coming a day, and we've been told with great surety, there's coming a day when we won't have to contend with sin anymore. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. And the saints will live there with God in his presence forever. And we trust that promise made to us in the latter verses, the latter chapters of Revelation. We know what we're about to hear now on those scrolls. So the announcement's been made. There is someone who is capable of opening these. And John describes him. He, he looks like a lamb that has been slain. So now we recognize we're in the throne room and John is describing some events that have already happened. He's describing Jesus crucified as a past event, not a future event. This has already occurred because he's describing what qualifies him to be able to do it because he was a lamb out of Judah and he was a lamb out of the house of David. All of those things establishing the criteria that Jesus was connected to humanity where there was free will. So his desire, his willingness to die was because of him. He was not manipulated into it. He was not tricked into it, deceived into it. Jesus gave himself because he was fully human. He had free will to give himself for us to pay that price, to overcome sin, to remain sinless. He had to be connected to humanity to create the qualification that he was, could be the one who could open those seals and read what's on those scrolls. So it begins... And they recognize him and they recognize what he's done and the price that he's paid so that this plan of redemption could be exposed. And we begin to see it and we watch it unfold. And then it says in, in like chapter six or seven, it says, and then his spirit is released over all the earth. And we know we're looking at a past event. What are we looking at? When, when did that occur? At Pentecost, when his spirit was poured out on all men. Every man on the earth today has access to the Spirit of God. Again, these are things that are just hitting me with strange profundity. They're just hitting me oddly. The recognition that every battle, without exception, is a battle between God and Satan. I don't care what you're struggling with in your life. It is a battle between Satan and God. We know that the beginning of the battle, if we have to trace it all the way back to to Genesis, we know that the battle started because of something that happened that Satan did. But we could probably say a lot more personally that the reason that I'm in the struggle is because of something that Satan has said to me, lied to me, whatever it happens to be. And if we don't believe that every battle is, is between God and Satan, then what will absolutely happen every single time is we'll assign the battle to ourselves and never correctly identify the enemy that has to be overcome. And he wants it that way. You know, how did Pharaoh keep all of these Jews in slavery for 400 years? They numbered at times more than the Egyptians. How could he do it? He did it because he made them believe that they were slaves because of human weakness. It was a problem within themselves. He made them see themselves as the place 
of the problem. And when it felt that way, then it was unchangeable, unalterable, hopeless. And most of us look at the struggles in our lives and assign it to human weakness within ourselves. Addiction, struggles, frustrations, relationships, all assigned. And so we feel like we're in a battle and we own these battles way, way too long. If we recognize they're all between God and Satan, then we can recognize that there's an enemy that we can actually identify that's not just my human weakness, but I can also recognize that the victory every single time is when I actually bring God and we allow him to step into the situation in me. And immediately when we're surrendered to to the reality of God in the story, victory will come just like that. It's not even a maybe. You know, I love the story when this woman in the city of Nain is bringing her son out. Her only son has died. They're bringing him out on this funeral buyer and he's been carried out. So there's this entourage of death coming out. And Jesus is coming into the city of Nain with all of his followers and they confront each other at the city gate. So what do we have set up? Who's in this contest? Death and life. Who wins every time? If we will allow... Who will win every time? Life will. Even if we die as believers and we've brought God into the story, where do we go? We never die. Death cannot take us. My physical body will die, but my mind, my soul, and my spirit will never die. And my physical body will come back to life. That's how thorough the victory is. We can get bad news and feel entrenched in a battle. Learned this lesson many, many times in that room with Jan having this arm just shattered and not knowing exactly what the surgery is going to be like and how they're going to put all this broken pieces back together. And I was in the room and Jay was in the room and Kate was in the room through the night and we were trying to sleep and the room would get restless and Jay would stand up and he would begin to pray and say, God, let your peace rise up in all of us where the turmoil is. Let your peace take its place. You see, every time we're in turmoil, God is willing. No, he won't give you peace. I can promise you can pray and pray and pray. He will not give you peace. Sorry, he won't do it. Why not? He can't give you what he's already given you. You can pray until you're blue in the face and say, God, give me peace. And the answer will constantly be no. Because he cannot give you what he's already given you. So what's the prayer? Let the peace you've already given me rise up in me. Let that peace that you gave me when I became your child, let it rise up in me and remove the turmoil, remove the frustration, remove the bitterness. Let the forgiveness that you showed me when you forgave me, let that forgiveness that I received, let it rise in me to to forgive those who have hurt me and remove the bitterness from me. Every time that we appropriate God into the story and let him do what he will do, victory will come. We want to set the terms of victory. Because a lot of times our victory says, I want the other person to hurt. I want them to pay. I'm perfectly content for me to be okay, but I'm not going to be really happy with all this until they pay for what they've done. We want vengeance as well as as victory. When would he not ever, on our behalf, bring victory? What situation could we describe? Circumstances, difficulties are going to happen. You can't stop this in this world. That's, That's an absolute reality. But the reality of who we are is that we recognize for even those who have been so close to us that we've lost, what brings me the greatest peace is I know they didn't die. They geographically changed locations and the promise is is so absolutely true that there's coming a day when it's my turn and I will be there with them. 
Death has been overcome. The grave has lost its sting. We read those scriptures and we know it's true. All of these things that we have read, all of these things that we understand is us being able to live in the presence of God right now. I wish that would become normal Christianity. We can read Watchman Nee's book, Normal Christianity. This is exactly what he talks about. Living in the presence of God. What an amazing blessing if we can ever just recognize it when I lay down at night, when I'm driving in my car, when I'm working or when I'm whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it in the presence and in the throne room of God. You cannot remove me from that throne room. That's where I abide. I can choose to leave and live in the flesh, but if I choose to live in the spirit, I'm living in the very presence of God. I want us to begin with verse eight. This is where he takes the book. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Again, this shouldn't surprise us. This should be exactly what happened when the priest entered the Holy of Holies. He was going in to represent everybody and everybody's sin. He was receiving the atonement for everybody's sin when he entered into the Holy of Holies. He had access. Again, we understand a little bit about what's going on here, that those saints, the 24, as we talked about in, in, in the time of David, in the Levitical order, and these 24 courses were represented by some member of, of these families, and they, but they represented the entire body of priests that they came in offering the prayers of everyone else. So the scene is this real place of victory. This is a victory celebration moment that's happening in the throne room. The Lamb's accomplishments, what he's accomplishing now is so great that it immediately induces worship. I'm looking forward to the day when we walk into this sanctuary and you cannot stop someone from singing at the top of their lungs with the full expression of whatever they want to express, however that looks, because they're recognizing that I'm not singing to a God far off. I'm singing in the throne room of God. Because I want to tell you, if we ever were to get a glimpse of what John saw, you could not stop our mouth from praising God. You couldn't stop us. But we're designed now on this side of the cross, we're designed to be able to see that. And that worship is not something that happens to us in a few minutes. Worship is the reality of our lives because our lives are, are about to explode because what we have seen and how God has engaged us. Even to recognize this one truth ought to radically change our praise before God. To recognize that you can do nothing to make God love you more. To recognize that you can do nothing to make God love you less. You can't perform better today to make God love you more or perform poorly tomorrow to make God love you less because his love for you is not fixed in you and your accomplishments. His love for you is fixed in his heart and you cannot change it. God loves us. He loves you personally, intimately. He loves you. I had someone in my office this morning and was telling me about this very strange moment where these events began to unfold and she knew that it was God. And I said, isn't it strange, unusual that the creator of the universe who spoke this place into existence could, and could say things like, let there be light and it happened, who could breathe into this lump of clay laying on the ground, this breath of life and to watch all the possibility in this humanity rise up 
That God loves you so much. He spoke that intimately to you. And he loves you at that kind of detail, at that kind of a level. We were out visiting Sula last week. And we were just visiting about one thing or the other. And the hard part for Sula was that she would talk and she coughs. And the minute that the conversation, and we were there over an hour after that. The minute the conversation turned to God and what God was teaching. And she began to share a few experiences. I pointed out to her at the end, you haven't coughed a single time in over an hour through all this talking. And it, it was so strange for her. And I told her, I said, it's because what you're seeing is your inability to do anything that God would want you to do. You're laying in his presence and he's not disappointed a bit that you can't do what you used to do because you have been unaffected at all by all your physical limitations makes no effect on him because what he wanted you for, for in the first place was to abide in his presence. John chapter 15. Unaffected by physical limitations or physical abilities. Unaffected because he wanted you to abide and that's all he wanted. God being that intimate. He loves us that way. Imagine what John was seeing when he saw this lamb as if it had been slain. To him that would have looked like a lamb that had his throat cut. Blood, but alive. That's what it would have looked like to him. So here we have, in this picture, Christ, the Son of God, the beginning of a new creation, according to the scripture. He's proclaimed in this moment, worthy to take the book, that describes the humanity that's locked into itself and redeemed it from its rebellion against God. He took humanity from a resistance and rebellion to victory because of what they were seeing that he had done. They were looking upon all the price he paid, all of that he had sacrificed, all that he'd chosen to do. They were looking back on it and they could not stop themselves. I mean, we're talking about humanity that was paid for by those events in the throne room of God, seeing what Jesus did and couldn't contain themselves from praising God. And it just explodes out of them. He has full power and they see it. He has full authority and they, and they realize it to fulfill all the requirements that would ever be needed in redemption. Everything able now to overcome our flesh and the humanity tied to it. Verses 9 and 10, it's very important that at this moment, a new song of praise erupted in the throne room. And it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain, past tense, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And this is the song that they began to sing together. When it says they sang a new song, that word new is a new kind of song. This wasn't just new words to old lyrics. This was a song like they had never sung before. This was a new kind of song. This was a song of absolute victory as they recognized all that had been done. But just notice, because we're looking back at these things is historical events. You were slain, we know that, and purchased for God with your blood. You purchased for God men from every tribe, every tongue, and people and nation. You have made them to become a kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what John announced. According to Peter, that we are a nation of priests. We weren't a people and now we are a people, according to Peter. And they will reign upon the earth. What's the promise to God? 
for those of us in the millennial reign who are believers, what does he say we will do? We will reign with him in the millennial reign. You see, we're seeing stuff here that you and I already know because what they were seeing in about 95 AD when John actually saw this stuff, they were looking on it very fresh. We're looking back on it as history 1900, 2000 years ago, but we know it's true. And I want to tell you, it might change for me. I don't, I, I can't speak to this, but if someone had saved my child's life when my child was two, and now my child is 40, what do you think would, would change about my appreciation to the person who saved my child's life at two years old? How would I feel at, about them at 40? I hope not the same. I hope not less. Because what happens with every year that you gain? You realize this year would not have been possible. That which, the blessings I just got added a time on time and time with every year would not have been possible had this not occurred when he was two. It should be ever increasing. What should be happening to us in time? We're getting further and further away from the cross. What should be happening to our desire to praise him and the recognition? It's all these years of victory that we've experienced should cause us not to just recognize the fact of what he did, but we're getting to see that the mass, the sum total of all the blessings of over all the years that we've been able to recognize and realize because of something he did 2000 years ago. It should never be getting less. Hopefully it wouldn't stay the same. I would hope it would increase because I could recognize when I see my son at 40 years old, see him graduate from college or see him graduate from high school and recognize none of that's possible. To see him get married and have children, recognize these children wouldn't have been possible had this not occurred. You know, even in our loss, we recognize this great provision of God so that even in our loss, and we've all experienced it, I recognize of the, the gain that I have it because I am going someday to be able to, to be in the presence of those family members and those I love who I've lost because of the assurances of God. Always gaining. So he took the book out of the hand of the one who sat on the throne. This is Jesus taking this book, this scroll out of the hand of the father. Again, immediately a new song burst forth from those on and around the throne. They represent all that are governed by God, all that call him king, all that call him Lord, affected by this particular moment. And they began to sing this new song that says, worthy is the lamb. Amazing. This lamb, this shallow that's mentioned earlier in chapter five, the one whose right it is, is worthy to break these seals. So what do the seals signify? I found this interesting because Switching this around in my head and studying the revelations the way that I am, how many preconceived things God has changed? I never recognized that the seals that were keeping this book bound were bad things. I was I just like I never assigned them something that was limiting or stopping this plan of redemption from being unfolded. I never recognized that these seals were not great things or just insignificant things. They symbolize the bonds and the spirits to keep us bound in slavery to ourselves so that the full redemption cannot come. So there's, a, there's one of those relevant truths that I mark down when I find them. It's sad to realize that one portion of these seals, one thing that keeps us from stepping into the fullness of a relationship that God wants us to have 
And I would tell you, unfortunately, probably the leading thing that keeps us from stepping into the fullness of the relationship that God has designed for us is religion. I see religion as the first problem that keeps us from knowing God. The reason being that it gives us a form of godliness, but we don't know the power. We don't know the authority. We have a form of godliness, according to Hebrews, but we don't know the power thereof. Religion makes us feel right. It makes us feel like we have something to do and go through the motions. I was on the phone last night. I have more counseling right now over the phone than I've ever had before. And this guy discovered his name. He says, now I just got to figure out what God would want me to do with it. And I said, you've got to erase that question out of your mind completely. He said, yeah, it's kind of dangerous to ask God what he wants me to do with it. I said, that's what I'm talking about. I said, that is an inappropriate question to even hold in your head. What does God want me to do? That's religion talking. Religion will always lead us to want to do something because we've concluded that that's what makes God happy. The more I do, the happier he gets. That's the teaching of religion. And it's perpetuated day after day after day, church after church, from pulpit after pulpit, the notion that God's happier with the more that we do. Simply not true. To erase that mindset and to put in its place in the reality that God loves us for who we are, not what we can do. He loves our identity. It's always been about identity and not about what he wants us to do. Religion, carnal, saved but carnal, is one of those things that's going to have to be broken for the full plan of redemption where we can dwell with man. Man can dwell with God. Religion is going to have to be dealt with. The church has lost its way in a time when we need the church to find it quickly. We recognize, I've taught you many, many times, the source of our problems is not our government. The deep-rooted problem of, that we're dealing with today is not our government or the governments of the world. What are they doing? They're, they're behaving exactly as you would expect humanity to act. It's not our families. That's not where the breakdown is. Where were families supposed to gain strength and knowledge and wisdom? Where's the source of our problem? Church. It's what God created first. You start looking for a problem, fold back the layers. Government was created much, much later in the story of God. Families was established in Genesis chapter 2. But in Genesis chapter 1, when God created man, he established a relationship between man and God so that we could actually be in his image. The first thing created was church, God's relationship to man. Then family, then government. You want to find out where the problem is? It's right here. We're broke. We've lost our way. And it's, at some point, we'll find it again. At some point, I will not care what your denominational title is. I will not care whether you're Baptist from here or Baptist from somewhere else. I will not care. Because when I'm in the battle with you, I'm not going to talk about your denomination. I want to talk about the size of the weapon that you carry, the prayer that's on your heart, the love of God, the goodness that will overcome. That's what I'm going to want to know. And that's what I hope you want to know about me recognizing what God has done. In this moment, only the lamb whose very life has overcome death is worth and worthy to redeem humanity. In this new creation, we become citizens of heaven. Again, we're called the royal priesthood. The royal priesthood is under the government of God. And though it's God's government, it's established over all things earthy, earthiness of those things that are base. Verse 11, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So if we just picture this scene in a faraway heaven, 
that the separation from God and man is this huge space because of the sin that we've committed and that that huge span still exists. If we picture that, that scene that we just read about of angels and angels and, and millions and trillions of angels, time can't be numbered. If we picture it in a faraway place, it won't change us. It's too far removed. We need to see that throne of God within us. We need to understand with the perspective of that throne of God, as the, the scripture says, that is within us. For the Holy Spirit rules us from within. We know that's the source of the kingdom. We need to see that the life of God, depicted by the living creatures that we read about in this passage, is one with God's authority and government and all who form the royal priesthood. These connections should be formed in us as well in all of God's messengers. God wants us to know that we are not alone in our awe of his wonderful government and his great purpose for humanity. An anthem of praise fills our hearts as we become spiritually aware of God's wonderful salvation. I'm still struck, especially when I hear it in person, when someone begins to sing the national anthem. There's something about that anthem that stirs something in me as an American. There should be an anthem written across our hearts that when we hear it, it stirs something in me as a believer. There's something in me as a Christian. When we sing on Sunday mornings, I find myself about to leave my skin. I go home with my knees hurting because when we're singing, everything in me is moving. It's like I need to get outside this body that's holding me down so that I can actually express to God what I want to express. And with me, it's ever increasing, you know, from one opportunity to praise to the other. And it says they sang with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So you can notice this rising crescendo in the praise of God's worthiness. We see him worthy. Verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The actual translation is not forever and ever. The actual translation is into the ages of the ages. It's very impressive. No created thing is left out of this universal praise. It includes every created thing to make sure that this is, a, this is fully understood. It, it lists all this, those known locations, heaven, earth, under the earth, on the sea, all things in them. This includes everything that is within us. Everything within us praises him. Bitterness and unforgiveness would not praise him. So if we would take time to meditate on this, I guarantee you it will overwhelm you. Colossians 1 tells us that all these things, visible and invisible, have been created by him and for him, all to glorify the Lamb, and there are no exceptions. Everything he created, he created to glorify him. And in this last verse of chapter 5, and the four living creatures, now I'm not going to talk much about this, because if you want to make a note, who are these four living creatures, go back to chapter 4, and I think in about verse 7 or 8, it tells about this. The first one was like a lion, which we saw last week from the tribe of Judah symbolizes authority. The second creature was like a calf or an ox, which, which depicts his service. The third creature had a man's face, which speaks of his humanity. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. That illustrates victory and the overcoming, as we could picture with an eagle. It says, the elders fell down and worshiped. Those living creatures and saying amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The living creatures representing the life of God saying amen to all that the redemptive discipleship of God. 
They do not fight and fume against God. They know that he loves them even though the, the way is rough. They say amen, and they are in agreement with everything that God does. Those 24 elders fell down. That's us in his presence right now, praising him for the salvation, for the cross, for the resurrection, for the giving of the Holy Spirit, that which he's done that has brought us redemption and that will take us to the full redemption of a new heaven and a new earth. So much in this, so much in this explosion of praise and the acknowledgement of what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, what he has accomplished on our behalf, the freedom he gives us, the victory he gives us. And I don't care what you're struggling with today of an addiction or a relationship, an attitude, whatever it happens to be, victory has already been established over your struggle. That's not a maybe. That is an absolute. Because what is there that could have ever come up in our life that God's not bigger? What did he tell us? Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I have overcome the world. What could there ever be in my story that God has not already told us that victory has already come? We own misery way too long because we refuse to yield our battle to his victory. Sadly for many, our struggle is how we've known ourselves. If we give that up, we won't even know who we are. We're known by those struggles. If we let them go, we won't know what to do. It is hard to be. We don't understand it, what it means to be. I love the moment, powerful moment when they came looking for Jesus in the garden. And they, he says, whom do you seek? And they see Jesus of Nazareth. And his answer right in that moment, I am. And every one of them, guards and all, hit the ground. They couldn't stand in the presence of I am. Not I do. Not I go, not I love, not I send, I am. Because they recognized what he said. They knew what he said. He knew how to do it. He knew how to be. And he came to show us. When he says those kind of statements, without the Father, I can do nothing. Hear the words, do nothing. It's a reality. Strange one. Learning how to be when we've been taught so long to do. Hard change. But if you ever get it, it's one of the most liberating things that could ever occur. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this particular teaching. I, these two chapters have just been profound to me. Just amazing, Lord, for the clarity that, that you brought in this teaching this time. One that has, I've just not ever been interested in. But you have drastically changed it. Because I'm not looking at something that just would affect us someday. This is designed to affect us right now. To change and restore us. To bring freshness and newness in our relationship right now to let us know that we have access to that throne room. We know what happened now when the veil was torn over the Holy of Holies that you gave us entrance. We just thought you gave us entrance into the Holy of Holies. But what happened in there, Lord? What happened in the Holy of Holies was that the priest would go in and be in your presence. So now that the curtain is torn over the Holy of Holies and you give us free access into your presence, into the throne room. Lord, it amazes me. It, the connection, the clarity just amazes me. And I pray, Lord, that it would be not only me, not because of the way I teach it or what I say, but because of the spirit that speaks in these moments. Because if anybody's going to get it, if it's going to make any difference, it's not because it came out of my mouth. It's because it came out of yours. That's the only way that any life here is going to be changed. It's because they recognize this isn't Randy teaching. This is the Holy Spirit using Randy to speak 
the truth. That's the only thing that will move us, change us, do anything in us. I'm, it's hopeless for me to speak it, even with excited as I am to be able to do it. The life-changing part, the part that touches us deeply, that's you. It can't even begin to be me. So I pray, Lord, that you would touch with this truth, bring revelation that would begin an encounter so that the richness of these moments doesn't end in a few minutes. It goes with us. The eagerness, the excitement just doesn't stop. And the new song, a new kind of song begins to spring out of us. One that strangely and powerfully recognizes who you are and all that you have done on, that has set us free so that we can be who you made us to be. Thank you, Lord, for this teaching. Thank you for, for the fact that you come to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen.